Hello and welcome back to the Bunker Daily. I'm Naomi Smith. The Windrush scandal and Black Lives Matter campaigns have helped to shine a spotlight on Britain's shameful colonial past. From Ireland to India, Africa to the Caribbean, we have much to atone for. But as someone who studied Mandarin and spent time working in China, I wanted to discuss a story that I think has largely gone under-reported in the UK. And that's the protests that have been happening in Hong Kong over the past year. When Britain handed over its colony in 1997, it was hoped that despite the Tiananmen Square massacre being less than a decade-old memory, the One China Two Systems approach would still protect citizens' rights in Hong Kong. But over time, the freedom of press, judiciary, and even the safety of booksellers was consistently eroded. And it came to a head in 2019, when demonstrations by pro-democracy activists hit the headlines, triggered by the so-called extradition bill. The expert joining me today to talk us through all we need to know is Professor Kerry Brown. Professor Brown is currently the director of the Lao China Institute and a professor of Chinese studies at King's College London. Before that, he was at the University of Sydney and outside academia has worked at Chatham House, as well as at the Foreign Office as First Secretary at the British Embassy in Beijing. Professor Brown, ni hao ma. Hello, <laughs> Welcome and thank you so much for, for joining us on The Bunker. Do you speak Cantonese, Mandarin, both? Touch of Huiga, perhaps? Uh, no, no, I, I, only Mandarin. Only After I fashion Mandarin, but, but no, no Cantonese, I'm afraid. Well, as somebody that hasn't regularly spoken Mandarin for a decade, uh, I can tell you the atrophy is so much worse than for any other language. Uh, so <laughs> please, please don't uh, yeah, spot check my, my Chinese. Uh, when, when do you hope that you might be able to be able to start traveling back to the Far East? Uh, I mean, uh, it's uncertain at the moment, I think, because China's just had another breakout of the virus. So the restrictions are in place there for people coming in. Of course, mm. in the UK, we've got limitations too. Yeah. Is that breakout in Beijing or all over? Uh, in Beijing uh, from a market, I guess. And then I've heard that a lot of other provinces have put you know, restrictions on movement. So still not remotely close to normal again. Oh, well, I miss, I miss traveling to China. So I'm really looking forward to being able to go back. Um, and listen, I'm really grateful that you're here today. And I think if we could first talk um, about the situation in Hong Kong, that would be great. And then we can get on to what Britain should do about it, if anything. Uh, and I mentioned at the top of the show, the, the extradition bill that concerned so many Hong Kongese is technically known as the Fugitive Offenders Amendment Bill. But what is so egregious about it? Well, so uh, I, I guess the main thing is that it's um, the first time that Beijing has uh, interfered really or, or it's the first time that Beijing has looked like it's interfering in you know the kind of legal affairs of Hong Kong uh, so it's a very contentious area because the one country two systems agreement uh, gave Hong Kong a high degree of autonomy and as you said I mean a lot of areas that's really been put under pressure it's questioned and, and you could say sometimes that almost sort of like the one country two systems has kind of doesn't really exist anymore uh, and so this proposal so it's at the moment a proposal but it's most likely to be passed gives in theory Beijing lots and lots of uh, ways in which to involve itself in what I guess most people would say were domestic issues for the Hong Kong uh, you know legal system and so the extradition bit of it, is that, is that, it's sort of been nicknamed that, and is that because of a concern that people would have to stand trial in China rather than in Hong Kong under the judicial system there? 
Absolutely. I, I mean, this whole issue grew up from last year when there was a proposal for an extradition bill. Uh, the extradition bill uh, from Hong Kong uh, was because of a crime that was committed in Taiwan. And Hong Kong argued that as it regards Taiwan as part of the People's Republic, right. therefore it could not extradite people back to a place it didn't recognise. It therefore had to do an extradition bill for China, in which Taiwan was part of China. So this whole thing escalated. Uh, this okay. bill, though, is just to say that you can be tried uh, in, uh, you know, kind of China for crimes committed in Hong Kong. You can have people taken from one jurisdiction to the next. So that's a big, that's a big, big change. Sure. Um, and th there have been fairly regular pro-democracy demonstrations over the years in Hong Kong, but nothing on the scale of these. Um, I think one event last year in Hong Kong had two million people on the streets. That's more than a quarter of the population. Who Who's participating now that didn't before? So in 2019, I think there's lots of evidence that a lot of people felt uneasy with the way in which their cultural identity, their political and legal rights were being eroded. So it's kind of quite a big group of people. You know, it's not just about the political issues. It's about, I suppose, Hong Kongese feeling their identity really being pressed down upon. Uh, and so the, the sort of marches in 2014, pretty big. Uh, but this time, I think there's been a broader coalition of people involved. And also in the elections late in the year, these sort of local elections held in Hong Kong, most voted for pro, you know, kind of pro-democracy, uh, not really pro-Beijing parties. So I think this sort of sense of Hong Kongese identity being under threat is very palpable, very tangible. Uh, and I think it's kind of more than just the politics. It's about a place which feels like it's overwhelmed by somewhere else that isn't exactly the same as it. Yeah. Um, China has formally uh, approved a plan to impose controversial national security legislation in Hong Kong. Um, some saying that it could go into effect, I think, uh, as early as the end of this month. Um, what would it mean technically for Hong Kongers? How would it affect their sort of day to day lives? Well, the argument is that this is about people who are you know, engaged in terrorism and uh, security issues, and that therefore it wouldn't affect most people. The problem really is that the proposal is incredibly broad. I mean, like a lot of laws in China, the kind of definitions of what is what is, sorry, what is terrorism, what are security issues, you know, what is sabotage, these can be incredibly extensive. And so I don't think people are complacent about this. They know that in some ways this can be sold to them as giving more protection and stability. But in fact, in theory, it means that, you know, the government can take in people who they define as doing, you know, kind of things against public stability, which others would define as just political kind of work, which is no problem instability at all. General civil society. Yeah. 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 And now, in the UK, uh, obviously, we've had lots of uh, protests over over the last few weeks, um, and the authorities have been trying to encourage protesters to wear masks because of COVID. But um, in Hong Kong last year, they tried to ban them, or, or maybe they even did ban them. Why, why were so many of the protesters feeling that they had to cover their faces? Last year, before COVID-19 kind of appeared, uh, I think a lot of people felt that, you know, they were being recorded and that then people were going to come from the security services. So they wanted anonymity. Um, and it's very ironic, therefore, that this year the government is telling people if they do go to the streets, you know, if they do want to do <laughs> stuff, they have to wear masks. It's, it's somewhat, somewhat ironic. 
Xi Jinping uh, removed term limits for the Chinese presidency, uh, a role that he's held since 2013. To what extent are these protests just more broadly against his his style of dictatorship, uh, or, or is it really about the Hong Kongese just wanting full and proper democracy once and for all? I don't think it's directly about Xi Jinping. I mean, but it's symptomatic, I suppose, of the uh, perception that Xi Jinping's leadership is very autocratic and centralising. And so, you know, it's an interesting question. Were a leader to be different to Xi, you, you know, would you still be getting these issues in Hong Kong? I mean, I suspect some that you would. Uh, you know, the identity issues, the fact that I think one year there was something like 14 million, uh, maybe even more, you know, kind of visitors from across the border in the People's Republic into the city. You know, it's a huge, huge kind of thing to take on. And Hong Kong has sort of an identity which is is different. You know, it's from kind of a very different historic root and background. And so, you know, I think that would still be an issue no matter who was in power in Beijing. Well, you, you, you talk about that sort of separate history. And I think that brings us on to the role of the UK in all of this. Um, did Britain ever offer universal suffrage to Hong Kong? And, you know, if not, you know, are we as sort of, you know, Western uh, democracy advocates on strong ground to support their calls for it now? That's a complicated question. Um, I, I don't think until the, the reforms of the last governor, uh, Chris Patton from 1992, I mean, there were sort of attempts to have more representation and, you know, kind of set in place more consultation. Uh, actually, the history before then, uh, you know, from the time in which parts of Hong Kong were ceded to, to Britain from China, I mean, different stages over the 19th century, you would say that Britain really ran it commercially. You know, it ran it as a sort of, you know, trading entrepot, really, and, and not really kind of to pay much attention to local governance that sort of, you know, kind of would lead to democratisation. So one of the complaints really now, I guess, by Beijing is, well, you know, you had 150 years to produce all these changes in Hong Kong, and yet you didn't, and now you're telling them, telling us to do it, to telling us to do what you never did. Mm, mm. And, um, you know, obviously, I, I, you, know, I, that you can have some sympathy with that position. And, uh, and, and the UK is obviously in urgent need of some soul searching about our neglect of duty, I think, towards former colonial subjects. Um, could you just explain for our listeners what the term BNO is? That's British National Overseas. What, what does it mean and how does it differ from British citizenship? Well, as a result of the pressures in the final years uh, of British, you know, kind of uh, uh, sort of control over Hong Kong, a new category of passport was introduced, uh, and that gave visiting rights and residency rights, but not working rights. So, so the weird thing about the BNO passport, um, granted, I think, to about 300,000 Hong Kongese at the time, you know, it kind of allowed them to come fairly freely to the UK, but not to work here. Um, and so, you know, it, it's sort of a strange, a very unique situation. And I think it was introduced largely because of the pressure on Britain to do something, you know, for people who are anxious about the handover in Hong Kong. Uh, but it was never a very complete solution, always slightly patchy. And, and so you said that it was about 300,000. Do you know how many uh, hold, hold BNO today? I think most that could hold it did hold it. But yeah. I, I mean, they didn't sort of come, you know, uh, most stayed in Hong Kong. I mean, it's not surprising because Hong Kong's their home, yeah. uh, you know, and their lives and their sort of families and everything, you know, that was there. 
So in the lead up to 1997, there were movements of, you know, kind of Hong Kongese who were worried about what would happen after the handover to Canada, uh, some to the UK, some elsewhere. But the vast majority, even those with this new kind of passport, they just maintained, you know, their Hong Kongese citizenship and had this sort of as a backup, but they never really you know, used it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, are all Hong Kongese entitled to it now or, or only those that were there before 97? No, I mean, the proposal under the sort of Johnson government is that, you know, three million people would be accorded this BNO status or, or this sort of new uh, kind of slightly different status because it does give some, you know, kind of rights to work if you've got sponsorship. But it's a big question about, you know, how meaningful it is. It's a, it's a gesture, a gesture of solidarity, I suppose. But, you know, the bottom line is that I presume 99% of those three million people wanted to stay in Hong Kong as their home. What sort of situation, you know, improve that? Of course, yeah. Um, I mean, Britain's continued failure to to form a colonial subjects. Um, I think you know most uh, recently exemplified by the Windrush scandal is a national embarrassment. But as you've mentioned, the current Conservative government in the UK is making warm noises uh, towards BNOs and and BNO status. And I do have a sort of couple of questions for you on this. Um, first. Why, you know, why not offer it all to, to, to all Hong Kongese who feel they may need asylum from a Chinese dictatorship and, and, and be a bit more um, explicit about that? I mean, after all, we, we have been here before in the 1970s when Idi Amin expelled Asians from Uganda that held British passports and, you know, the UK hesitated uh, about letting them in. And, and secondly, and perhaps more, you know, importantly, because we've not really touched on this yet, why do you think this otherwise pro-hostile environment government feels less hostile towards Hong Kongese than, say, other immigrants from former colonies? I mean, I think the first question is, um, the, the restraints are not, uh, I mean, the government can offer what it wants to who it wants. The issue really is that, you know, uh, what is the domestic kind of response to this in the UK? Now, remember, uh, one of the kind of big things about Brexit was people's complaints, you know, about immigration. So, I mean, that's a domestic issue. And a government needs to balance, you know, the domestic pressures, whatever the merits or demerits of those, with, you know, kind of its international uh, obligations and aspirations. So the issue there really is what is the domestic response to this? I wonder, I mean, and look, this this is me projecting, so you may, may have no view on this or, or disagree with me completely, but... Uh, it, could could it be something in terms of our government being more open to welcoming those that are coming from a low tax environment um, and you know a place where culturally you know personal tax corporation tax tends to be lower than it is uh, in in other places and that maybe they rather like the idea of of people coming with that kind of cultural identity. I mean, so at the moment, the UK I think has. 350,000 people who, who you know, say they have Chinese heritage or have Chinese heritage. Um, and many of those were originally from Hong Kong, their families anyway, uh, you know, kind of maybe going quite a long way back. I guess the kind of anomaly of this group uh, is that their political representation has been low. I mean, there's one, I think, MP or maybe two MPs at the moment who are of Chinese heritage. Um, not a huge representation across local government. And so, you know, their kind of image of those of Chinese heritage in the UK is, I think, of sort of low profile and not associated with politics. Hong Kong clearly is changing that because it's become very politicised. And 
I think, you know, maybe the UK's experience of different ethnic groups is probably deeper, you know, with other groups, maybe mm. kind of than it is with Hong Kongese, because the migration patterns were different. They were sort of, you know, kind of came in different waves. And it's a slightly different history, not one that many people really know much about. And, and maybe our, our view of uh, the political culture in Hong Kong is out of date as well. Yeah, I mean, I think under the sort of uh, colonial rule of Hong Kong up to 1997, the uh, stereotype was, you know, Hong Kongese, just business, you know, no real care about politics. This was never true. I mean, in the 1960s, there were extensive riots because of, you know, kind of support and antagonism to, you know, the Maoist government in China. And I mean, it's been pretty clear since 1997 that people have strong political views in Hong Kong like they do anywhere. It's just that we never really knew much about that. That's absolutely fascinating. Um, and I, I think my final question for you is, is what can our listeners do if they want to show solidarity to the pro-democracy activists in, in Hong Kong? I think people need to be knowledgeable about Hong Kong. They need to understand the history. So there's good books written by, for instance, my colleague at SOAS, Steve Tsang, on the history of Hong Kong. You know, it's really important to work out what people themselves think about this issue. I mean, it's now half time, you know, sort of halfway into the 50 years of the sort of transition agreement. And I think, you know, the UK probably should know more about the history of Hong Kong and understand. And I think that matters, that there's going to be more knowledge here about Hong Kong. And that will help overall in understanding the situation better and dealing with it better. Professor Kerry Brown, thank you so much for joining us. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please consider backing us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just Google the Bunker podcast Patreon. There's a show pretty much every day of the working week with an occasional cheeky live stream on Zoom thrown in for good measure that is only open to Patreon backers. So please do subscribe. Thank you for listening. Joy Gein, Zai Jian. Goodbye, and we'll see you soon. The Bunker Daily was presented by Naomi Smith. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.